The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code DIESHRING for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom. And today I'm joined by, I think, uh, especially for a certain segment of my fans, a very exciting guest. I'll let him introduce himself. Well, thank you. My name is Chris. I am the senior equity research analyst covering semiconductors at Susquehanna Investment Group in New York. And I'm delighted to join you today. Yeah, I mean, so why don't you tell us a little bit more? I mean, you only have to tell us as much as you want to, of course, but like, like, where are you from? Like, where did you go to college? What got you into, you know, this line of work? Yeah, um, I guess I traded my first stock when I was 14 years old. Uh, <laughs> it doubled in three months and, uh, and I was hooked. So I have been interested in markets and stocks ever since. I ended up going to university uh, in Ohio, a small school called Denison University. Mm -hmm. Came out, I became a retail broker, which at the time was basically dialing for dollars, calling up people, Mm -hmm. send you a check so that you could invest it for them. They show that in the Wolf of Wall Street. (laughs) Yes, yes. It was a slightly different business. I I was working for uh, Morgan Stanley at the time. But yeah, I did that for a while. And then I started realizing uh, after trading my own account that I could actually make money. So then I became what was called a proprietary trader, which basically means a guy staked me Mm. uh, with a a decent sum of money to trade for him. I ended up managing a team of 20 plus proprietary traders. and, And that career went well until about 2008. 2003, when the volatility got sucked mm. out of the market. And that was the point at which I, I realized I probably needed a new career. And I went back to school. I went to Columbia Business School. At that point, uh, came out and became an associate on the sell side, is, is the um, side of the business that I'm on currently covering a whole bunch of stuff. I did internet security for a while, I did networking eventually found my way to semiconductors. And so I've been doing this as the head analyst for about 10 years now. And we cover basically all the large semiconductor companies in the United States, some international as well. And you know, maybe I should ask you, are you familiar <laughs> with a, what a sell-side equity analyst does? Uh, well, I was actually going to ask you, I think that no matter what, you should just you know, explain what it even means sell-side before we get into you know, any more. Sure. So on the equity research side, there's primarily a, a, a division called the sell-side and the buy-side. The sell-side, which is the side that I'm on, these are the guys who you hear about probably most frequently in, in, in the news. These are the guys who upgrade stocks, downgrade mm-hmm. stocks. Um, 
their primary primary role is to research these companies, primarily focus in on, let's say, 20 semiconductors tops and give information, research, access to experts, access to instruments mm. and companies to the buy side. And I the buy, see. And the buy side are, consists of pension fund managers, hedge fund managers, mutual fund managers, etc., who sometimes have a universe of 500 stocks that they're following. And when they really want to drill down on, let's say, one name, they often come to us for that level of detail. And so that is what I do. And we get paid primarily through executions of those stocks, whether buys mm. or sells. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm I, you know, the vast majority of my day, I'm spending talking to clients or writing research to help their process, to add value to their process, uh, to hopefully generate alpha, which is a return above the mm-hmm. market index. And they pay us in trades for those stocks, whether buys and sells. Yeah, if they go well. So I guess we do have to say now is a good point, you know, Full disclosure, you own shares in some companies, including AMD, am I correct? No, I am actually restricted on all semiconductors. Ah. Well, someone you work with sent me an email warning that I might have to disclose that either someone you work with or someone you work for does. Oh, um, that that may be the case. I I will tell you that Susquehanna, the company that I work for, they do sometimes own shares in companies, including AMD. A lot of times they may be doing this to hedge off their options positions. Mm-hmm. So we are one of the world's largest options market makers. So that's what they're primarily doing. But they also take proprietary stakes in these companies as well. Um, I really don't have a lot of information on, on, on what they're doing with those positions. Uh, I'm not paid that way. I'm not incentivized that way. Uh, I think that's often mistake that the general public makes. They yeah. have some sort of incentive-based interest in how these companies do, and I absolutely do not. Well, that's good. That makes you an honest guest. And, I, and this is where I also just have to say, I don't own stocks in any of these companies either. You know, I, I own, I guess I'll say it since we're on the subject, I own some stock in Tesla right now. But that's all I can really confirm, you know. So You and me both. Yeah. Okay. So we we admit we own stock in Tesla. There is a question from one of our fans about Tesla near the end, if we can get to it. But I mean, I think a lot of people assume I own stock in AMD or NVIDIA or Intel. And I just have to keep reminding people. It's like, uh, I did in the past, but you know, there was this whole big disease that was going on where I said, I think I'm out. And then uh, this summer, I was like, yeah, I'm not rebuying it because it just kind of makes me objective. You know, I'm not rooting for any companies at all. Then, And uh, it's it's hard for some people to believe, but sometimes I just think AMD might have that much of an advantage over Intel at times or something. Um, But, you know, now that I brought up AMD, I suppose let's get to it. My first question I actually had, um, you know, you've been doing this for 10 years. AMD in 2015 was below $2 per share. I'm curious if you remember what your outlook was back then for AMD. Yeah. And I I think uh, you'll realize from some of these statements right off the bat, 
I'm a pretty honest and self-reflective person. Uh, AMD has not been my best stock to uh, to make calls on. Uh, when I started covering AMD, I want to say it was 2000. Well, it was 2012 when I had my own rating on it. Mm-hmm. I had a buy, and the stock was uh, about three dollars at the time. Uh, this was around the first PS4 and uh, Xbox win. I think of things in terms of console generations too sometimes. And so I thought this was going to be really a game changer for them. But their PC business continued to fall apart. You know, Jim Keller was there at the time, but he mm. was relatively unknown in terms of the impact that he can make on a company. And basically, I was a bull on that stock. The stock went down to, I think, maybe two bucks. I eventually went to a neutral. It then went to a buck fifty. I switched companies, and while I was uh, in transition, the stock I think went to nine bucks or something like that yeah. during the transition. I came out with a neutral on the stock, and in 2017, we had the crypto, whatever you want to call it, uh, Lollapalooza. Mm-hmm. I remember <laughs> the crypto party, uh, really uh, Ethereum based. And we made a call that there were far, far too many cards on the GPU side in particular mm-hmm. that were being sold for this, what we thought was going to be a phenomenon. And we downgraded AMD. We also downgraded NVIDIA at the time. We were ultimately right on the issue, but wrong yeah. on but wrong on the stock. And that was a great lesson for me. I can tell you what that lesson is. Um, but what killed me with that downgrade was three weeks after I made the downgrade on AMD, Intel came out and pushed 10 nanometer by another year, uh, which was big news. Mm-hmm. And, and, and ultimately, it was at that point that I realized that AMD had a real chance here, that AMD was going to pick up share uh, given the benefits they would get from basically attaching their cart to TSM's horse. And in the shortest amount of time I've ever upgraded the stock after a downgrade, I believe it may be a month later, I actually upgraded AMD, recognized the mistake that we had made, and we said maybe we were wrong here. Uh, it wasn't until uh, until much later that we got a little bit more aggressive on on AMD after we realized the share shifts and and then upgraded to buy. But that was the AMD. With that, um, you know, we had downgraded Nvidia around the crypto thing. The they Fortnite the boom, <laughs> where they were telling their shareholders there was this big Fortnite boom, and I was just. I, I remember seeing that one week after seeing a story, I think on the Washington Post, about how one of the mining groups in the Pacific Northwest was renting Boeing 737s so they could move GTX 1060s and 1070s directly from the factory off the tarmac directly to the mining uh, place on the tarmac. Because if they could cut out even a few days, it's a few days they have more mining hash power and they're making more Ethereum. And then they just say, it's oh, it's a Fortnite boom. And I'm like, no, <laughs> NVIDIA, who are you fooling? But in some ways, I, you know, I don't know if they fooled it or if it just didn't actually affect them yet. You know, I mean, because frankly, they lied about that. 
They they did. In fact, I I believe both companies lied about it. Mm. Lied about the percentage of sales. Uh, we did a very detailed analysis. Uh, what you're able to do is look at the entire Ethereum blockchain. You're able to break that mm-hmm. cumulative hash rate apart, uh, and you can actually figure out how many GPUs were powering Ethereum. So we knew how many GPUs were sold during yep. this boom. We got that part right. The part we got wrong was, of course, this Intel 10 nanometer push by yet another year. That was one part that we got wrong. The other part was not realizing the small base, the small market share that AMD had at the time, which was maybe 5% of the market, and that it would be relatively easy to double that share or 100% Mm. increase. And so AMD was able to grow themselves out of the crypto hangover, as Jensen eventually called it. And they are the company that they are today as a result of really continued pushouts from Intel. But also, you know, you really have to put your your hands together for for AMD, from Lisa, from Jim Keller, and the turnaround in the technology uh, at the time as well. Yeah, I mean, I would say that when it comes to like AMD's current status, a lot of people might just say, oh, it's because a- you know Intel's falling apart or, oh, it's because AMD's magic. I mean, the truth is really a little bit of both, right? I'm, I remember, and this is kind of the next talking point here, Zen 1, they said they were comparing it to Broadwell in 2016. And, you know, so that they wouldn't really be up to Intel's IPC. They were like showing samples at three gigahertz. No one was sure what would actually end up coming out. But what did come out was something, I would say at least 10, 20% better than what they projected. They weren't, um, they weren't overestimating the performance. They were underestimating it. And then at the same time, Intel, I think, assumed AMD was overestimating by 20%. So if you have one person who's actually been kind of downplaying it and another person who has been underestimating, it turns into this situation where AMD was substantially better than Intel was was ready for. And then I guess the only other thing I'd throw on top of that was, uh, I mean, thank God in some ways for this industry, because if that wouldn't have delivered, I mean, again, you could argue that would have been it for AMD. Yes, when the stock was $1.50, you know, there were a lot of people playing for zero at the time, a lot of hedge funds short, and, uh, and there was a real, real bankruptcy risk. You know, yeah. we, were lo- we were looking at those bonds, we were looking at interest payments that they were going to have to make, and we were trying to figure out how much cash they had to survive. And that's when AMD did some very, very desperate things to stay alive that were all not quite illegal, but certainly there was some gray area. You know, this, they gave basically x86 server technology at the time to the Chinese. I'm shocked that that uh, CFIUS and government organizations didn't get involved in that. But mm-hmm. today... China has x86 server technology in their Thatic joint venture with AMD uh, as a result. Yeah. Um, I re- and I think that's another thing that I thought of earlier. I want to emphasize too. I, I see this all the time. Like specifically, I see this in the cryptocurrency space where people are like, oh, I wish I would have bought, you know, whatever Bitcoin at $10 or something. And it's just like, 
Yeah, but you realize when Bitcoin was ten dollars, that was <laughs> that was a risky investment. And I've seen so many people go, "Oh, I wish I would have bought AMD at two dollars." And you go, "I mean, it wasn't just AMD haters. AMD could have gone out of business. Genuinely, they genuinely almost did. If you bought it at two dollars, it was a risk. That's why it was so cheap, everybody." Yeah, I I would say they were two quarters away from going out of business. And so when it comes to Zen 1, what were you expecting from it? And I mean, once they unveiled it, um, I don't like, you know, what were you expecting? What were your takeaways once it fully launched? I was expecting almost nothing. AMD was so hated at the time. As you remember, some of the architectures, bulldozer, you name it, there was very little improvement there. It was an entirely uncompetitive product. Mm -hmm. Um, the gap was so large. Intel was literally cleaning their clock. And so I did expect an improvement in Zen 1, but I still did not expect it to be competitive. So I thought it was it was going to be a non-issue. I remember going to the AMD Analyst Day in New York in the NASDAQ market site, and they had this very elaborate, beautifully put together deck with all of these numbers. And they had lost so much credibility going into that day that we just simply, every analyst there, I uh, just did not believe them, did not believe that these things were, even these modest improvements <laughs> were going to be were going to be possible. And I would say, you know, probably, I, I don't know this for sure, but at least a, a third of the analysts had a sell rating on the stock. It could have even been higher. Um, mm. I, I think maybe 10% might have had buys. I was probably one of the more bullish on the names and I had thrown in the towel. So it was really kind of dark days. And we'd moved on to CEOs. Lisa was on the newer side of things. Uh, and she was an unknown at that time. So yeah, it was uh, it was not pretty. And it, you know, just to your point, just to give you an example of a company going out of business after the or during the great financial crisis, I remember Dollar Thrifty, the um, the car rental place. Mm. It was the stock was a dollar. It was literally there were articles saying they were three weeks from going out of business. And then the great financial crisis hit bottom. We bounced a little off of that bottom and the stock went from one to 40. So that just shows you how you can go from almost bankruptcy, uh, just normalizing. You can just have a massive return just to get back to normal. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of like examples though, like do any come to mind, especially if they're in this space of where... Everyone said they were going to fail, and then they did, though, because I think sometimes people see AMD's success, and they hear about this other success you've mentioned, and they'll go, well, they always must bounce back then if AMD did. Yeah, and the semiconductor industry is littered with them. I mean, if you just look at the, the GPU market, for example, mm. you know, there, there was, I, I, I don't know exactly how many players, but you know, 20, 30 players in the GPU market, and now we have two. I mean, you know, in the memory space, that was decimated. There was one Commanda that went bankrupt, and someone like TI, for example, Texas Instruments was able to buy their 300 millimeter fab for pennies on the dollar to bring the world its first 300 millimeter analog fab. So, yeah, these things happen. This creative destruction happens all the time, and just destruction happens all the time in, in semis. Yeah. And so I guess 
what I'm getting out of this though with Zen One, because this was kind of like almost a meme at a certain point in the PC gaming space. How many analysts kept saying AMD is done for and they kept releasing good products? I mean, I guess you're saying from your perspective, why would you believe objectively that Zen One is going to succeed after so many years of a disaster? And even after the, the CPUs came out, it was still just kind of this, well, let's see how long they last and if there's any problems. Am I wrong? Is that kind of what the sentiment was? Yeah, that was exactly the sentiment. I mean, you should have heard the, just sometimes the anger uh, in which <laughs> some, of, some of the analysts would ask, you know, Lisa some questions. Um, I know what you mean. Yeah. And, you know, the, the other side of this coin is the absolute faceplant that Intel did. I mean, mm-hmm. who, who would have thought they would have pushed 10 nanometer more than three years? This is, this is the company that coined the phrase Moore's Law, and they did an absolute faceplant. I guess Charlie over at Semi-Accurate, uh, we're, we're friends. He nailed it, but you had to you had to believe him, and and it was it was a tough one uh, at the beginning to swallow. Well, I think that's really a good point too. You know, I th- it's so easy for people to sit here right now and look back and go, "Yep, ten nanometer was going to fail," but at the time, we didn't know that it was going to fail. You know, or at least temporarily, or for a long. I don't even know if you call it temporarily. It was many years of failing. Um, you know, 14 nanometer went through quite a few problems. You know, Broadwell wasn't up to what they expected and it was a year late. And then Skylake finally came out and did impress people, but still, I believe only had 75% yields at launch, at least for the 6,700K. So I think people expected there may be some delays, but at the time, I mean, I remember you know, in the comment sections or in forums, like joking about how 10 nanometer won't be out till 2018 or 2019. And you had a mix of, you had a lot of people saying I was an idiot for that. And in fact, I would argue I underestimated, you know, I gave Intel too much credit back then. And, and, you know, I guess the other thing I would say too, though, is I'm starting to see, we don't have to dwell on this too long, but a lot of people now not accepting that Intel's 10 nanometer was as delayed as it was. I, there's still some people that act like it wasn't a big problem, which it was. But but then there's also some people saying it's never coming out. And I and it is, though. It is out. It's out. It just took four years. It's here four years late. And I could see some people making some pretty big um, mistakes and judgment on what's about to happen with some of Intel's products because they assume because it was never coming out for years, it never will. I mean, when we look at Tiger Lake, they have about as many design wins as whiskey like so it's it's clearly a real product or i don't know do you have a different thought on that no i mean you know my take is the first spin of 10 ice lake at least for the pc side is not great and you mean ice lake ice lake for pc yeah yeah okay because because when you say the first spin of 10 some people would argue canon lake was but that frankly barely came out yeah yeah ice lake was okay they basically so Canon Lake, they basically pulled because it didn't work. I believe the Cobalt interconnects had some serious issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they pulled that. I, I don't really count that as 10. So Ice Lake has been underperforming in its, in its you know, the first real spin of 10 here. And, uh, and I think Tiger Lake 
uh, is uh, is significantly better. Um, I feel like Tiger Lake is the first real version of 10 that that Intel's putting out. Um, but of course, you know, we can talk about it if you want, but there's seven and there are signs that seven's already slipping. And mm-hmm. and the question is, does it slip more? So, yeah, I mean, that that's where we stand. It, it, it was an absolute face plant on the part of Intel. Intel led the world by probably two years um, when this all started. And uh, and and now they don't. Yeah. And it, I think. You know, I'm actually, you jump in any time. Like, I'm kind of curious what you think about how much Intel was underestimating AMD after Zen 1 was already out because you had Zen 1 come out and they had almost caught up to Intel overnight. It was incredible. You would still say, I would still say, at least I know you, I would still say Intel was overall ahead in what they were able to make, right? They were ahead, but it was way closer than anyone expected. And then Zen Plus came out in 2018. And from my perspective, Zen Plus pretty much made it a wash. And so you had, you know, almost caught up the next year, caught up. And it felt like to me, still, for some reason, everyone was underestimating, you know, that it's time to really start taking AMD seriously now. Because if Zen Plus, which was basically just this tweak over Zen 1 has already, you know, erased another 10% lead from Intel. Zen 2, what is that going to do? And and I'm, I'm curious what you think about, you know, not just Intel kind of having mistakes in terms of like their foundries screwing up, but like, what do you think about them kind of dragging their feet to release a true eight core, you know, in the gaming space against AMD? I mean, they released a six core first. From my perspective, I'm like, no, they should have taken time and just done a full stack eight cores at the top and below way sooner than they did. But from what I've heard, and I'm just saying you know, what I've heard, they truly didn't think AMD would continue to innovate every year. You know, I kind of view it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so AMD was able to come out with fairly good enthusiast parts also gaming parts. If you're going to build your own PC, for example, it became pretty obvious pretty quickly uh, that you can get a better part per dollar if you were to buy AMD. Um, And this was also confusing for analysts like us. We thought, okay, maybe all of these improvements that are happening happening right now are really just for the enthusiast section, Mm. really just for desktops, and really just a portion of that desktop market. And I think Intel felt the same way. And so they basically just seeded that market to AMD and said, let's just focus our energy on more mainstream products here, including laptops. That's where the majority of units are anyway. Maybe some desktop products, but we don't have to go after the enthusiast market. And that was their approach. They continued to push marketing dollars over AMD and continued to push um, you know, price in certain areas. They had a number of 10 to 15% price cuts in order to push that part of the market. And it was going okay until they started running into some CPU shortages, particularly at the low end. Uh, and then they started seeding low end share to AMD as well. So... I guess now that we're kind of, we've, I feel like we've been dancing around it. What did you expect out of Zen 2 then? You know, and just to put things in perspective, at this point, you know, I think AMD had the 32 
core thread rippers, but they were, you know, very bad at gaming. And they had the eight core that was kind of close to their top gaming Intel 9900K, but it was really 20% weaker. Although again, half the price, you know, um, going into Zen two, what did you expect? Yeah. I mean, just so you know, the, my Zen one plus sort of estimate was, uh, to mm. get them in the ballpark of Intel, but still not there yet. Right. Um, my estimate for Zen two was to get them on par for the most part with Intel. And I think they exceeded that. I guess that's the best way of, of summarizing my expectations and, and reality. Yeah. And, and I, and one thing I just have here in the notes to bring up about that is I found the whole Zen two launch because I think, I think it's fair. It is fair to say that assuming AMD is just going to come back as hard as they did is kind of bonkers when they had been down for so long. But I think by Zen two, they were proving that they can execute over and over and, the funniest part for me around the Zen 2 launch was first, Lisa shows up that, you know, AM4 engineering sample with just eight cores on it. And we had so many credible leaks, I feel, at the time saying, no, it's going to be two eight-core chiplets. They're going to go to 16 cores on desktop. And Lisa shows up in eight-core first. And all of these people on Twitter were like, see, it's only going up to eight cores, despite the clear blank spot. And then they show off the 3900X, I think at Computex in 2019, and everyone goes, well, see, they're only going up to 12 cores. And it's like, no, don't don't you get it? They're about to show the 16. And then they show the 16. And, you know, finally, everyone kind of accepted reality. I'm, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts, especially from people you've worked with, because and, and I have seen it. I swear there's some like seeking alpha, for instance, accounts that just hate AMD with a passion, <laughs> you know, like what did you see as they slowly rolled out what I feel like people were still underestimating up to the last minute? Yeah, I feel like as these products were rolling out, Jim Keller's notoriety was growing in, in leaps and bounds. And by the end of it, he was essentially in our circles as at least known as a god. <laughs> um, you know, how did this guy pull this magic, you know, trick out of the hat? And, you know, people were kind of just scratching their heads trying to figure out how did this company go from just absolute horrible performance to something that, you know, was beating the market leader out there in many cases. It was an amazing turnaround to witness. Yeah, I guess. And, you know, let me just throw this out there again, that uh, I mean, legally, we can't say any of this is financial advice. I think I have to say that before we continue. Um, have as we move forward, then, I mean, what is, I mean, I mean, right now, Intel's got Comet Lake out, you know, it's 10 cores, uses an insane amount of energy compared to AMD's 16 cores. There are, there are admittedly still games where Intel is still king. I'll admit, you know, there are some, but I, I mean, overall, it's pretty much a wash in my opinion. Um, what are you expecting out of Zen 3? I mean, this podcast will come out a couple of days or a day before the Zen 3 reveal? You know, what are you expecting and what are you looking for? Yeah, I mean, I can't say that there are a few surprises out there that I'm like, you know, salivating to, to, to see. I think, you know, we're ultimately going to have, you know, maybe 15 to 20% IPC performance. We're going to have better power. 
you know, the gaming side, you're better on the gaming side than I am. That's, that's why I reach out to you. Um, so I don't know if there are any bells and whistles on, uh, on that side, they can throw at it. Uh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll answer that now. I mean, at the end of the day, it, it, it comes down to games that prefer really low latency for the most part. Not always. You know, there's other reasons that a game may run better on an Intel CPU. And I say Intel CPU, I mean one of the recent ones versus Zen 2. But in Zen 3's kind of, you know, big overhaul is latency. You know, if you really think about the progression of Zen, at least the way I think about it, you know, this isn't some gospel, but Zen 1 was kind of the proof of concept. We have CCXs, two four cores, we're mating them together. And on desktop, that's really all we're doing. But then when it comes to HEDT and Epic, what we're going to do is they can communicate with each other. In fact, not only are we combining two quad cores with Infinity Fabric on Epic, four of these, you know, eight core chiplets can be one 32 core package. And yeah, there's problems, but it works. It does. It works, guys. It, it, there's problems, but I think, and, you know, and I think that's worth emphasizing because I know some people heard about how Zen 1 was going to work and they were like, this is going to be Bulldozer 2.0, like the latency involved and stuff. And so then they moved to Zen Plus and it's like, well, it's a slight, it's like not even a half node shrink. Like we have faster clocks, we've massively improved the latency and they kind of demonstrated you know, just by improving latency on this architecture, we were able to bring you something 7 to 10% better depending on the SKU. Like that's all we need to do. And so then Zen 2 comes and they found a way to not just have, you know, one eight-core chiplet on desktop. They found a way to effectively have multiple eight-core chiplets on desktop without the latency penalties you saw with Epic in Zen 1. So not only did they prove it works with Zen 1 and tweak it with Zen Plus, but now Zen 2 is out here and it's almost caught up to Intel and gaming and some some lower latency dependent tasks, despite having an entirely separate I.O. controller made on a different node. And I think Zen 3 is the, okay, we've, you know, there's the proof of concept, there's the implementation with Zen 2, you know, making it work well. I think Zen 3 is removing weaknesses. And so, no, it's not this overhaul Zen 2 is, or Zen 1 was over Bulldozer, but it is removing these edge cases that Intel could still point to. You know, look at this game where we're 20% better. You know, the unified um, cache system in Zen 3, and I believe the entire overhaul of like in the Infinity Fabric and its clocks is going to make it so that Zen 3 should, in theory, basically remove the last advantage Intel had, and that's latency. And so it depends, right? If you're in a server, do you care? Well, it's more efficient. More is better. But if you're a gamer, you know, that extra 20% matters. And there are games where it's 30%. And so, yeah, that I expect it to be that kind of final, they can't really say anything bad about us anymore moment with Zen is what I expect. All right, I'm done talking there. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. I think that was some really valuable stuff there. Um, you know, for the server side, for example, I, I just to make one other point, I do think that latency is important. It's increasingly mm -hmm. important. Uh, the market for Epic is primarily hyperscalers. Um, and if you're doing a, uh, a search or um, you want some real-time uh, AI to give, you know, recommend something, um, uh, microseconds count. Mm -hmm. increasingly so and so latency is important and so i think that that the the changes to infinity fabric are, are important from that side 
No, that's a very good point to make. I was kind of thinking in terms of brute force compute scaling up on server. You're right that, and I know this because there's some people I talked to that, you know, sent me some information that showed, you know, as much as we think Threadripper is destroying Intel, for this 3D modeling application we use, actually an 18-core Intel is as good as a 32-core, you know, Threadripper, even if it's Zen 2 because of those latency advantages. And so I think, yeah, uh, um, and I do think sometimes the benchmarks we look like look at most on this channel, which is mostly just gaming, mostly just rendering, and gaming's latency dependent, but it doesn't always show up, you know, at least in the canned benchmarks, you know, and um, rendering is very much so not, <laughs> you know, and I think a lot of people use rendering and encoding as this sort of, you know, this is the best way to test how powerful cores are. But no, no, you're absolutely right that latency matters. And so that's kind of why it's like, it's hard for me to describe, like, because on paper, I don't think Zen 3 is as big of a deal as Zen 2. But if they can, like, effectively cut latency in half or something, let's say, you know, get to a point where they're right next to Intel, not maybe not quite as good as their newest ones, but close enough and they have double the cores, I think that could be seen by some markets as a bigger deal than Zen 2, honestly. Another thing is the process technology for the chip. I think it's supposed to be the uh, like mm-hmm. a seven plus from TSM, uh, which will help them as well. Oh yeah, that that's like another you know free ten to fifteen percent boost right there and certain you know uses. I guess you're just saying you expect Zen three. You know, on Thursday you expect Zen three to be better, but there's nothing specific you're expecting them to show off really besides gaming that is probably going to be a big deal or am i wrong in that interpretation yeah i mean they could touch on server the financial community very 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 much cares about server that's oh of the, course yeah that's the key to the whole story for the most part that's where all the incremental gains are are, are uh for the bottom line, at least, are coming from. And then uh, I think the RDNA stuff comes uh, later in the month. Gosh, Reese, why does Windows 10 Professional have to be so expensive? Don't listen to that, nerd. Listen to me. You can get all the great windows and gaming keys you need at CDK Offers. I have a plan. Go to cdkoffers.com to get all the Windows Professional and Microsoft Office keys you need and games as well. Add them to your cart and you can even apply one of them city slicker promotional codes like Dashring for 3% off software and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. I do have an account on this website and it is ultra easy to use. Just submit your order, use PayPal, credit card, or Bitcoin, and go to Windows website to download Microsoft Professional. One more time, that's go to cdkoffers.com. They are a fantastic sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead. Use offer code DOSHRINK for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows products. Now, back to the show. (laughs) 
So I guess since we're on the subject, you know, I don't, I don't doesn't sound like we have that much to actually say about Zen three, except it'll be good. Um, like what, what are you looking for out of RDNA two? Like what, well, I mean, I guess just generally speaking, if you don't mind, like what are your expectations and what have your thoughts been on their GPU side? You know, NVIDIA kind of changed the goalposts with Turing on the ray tracing side. And now it does feel as though AMD is playing catch up there. And so they need something along the lines of ray tracing cores or AI cores. They need something in hardware that's going to kind of get them up the curve. And I'm not exactly sure what that is yet. I'm ho- that's what I'm hoping. That if you asked me one one thing that they can change, that that would be it. It would be a few more bells and whistles to, if nothing else, really counteract some of the marketing that's going on at Nvidia. So yeah, that's that's probably the the big one for me. What what would you say uh, is? Well, yeah, because I was about to ask them because. And I have to jump in and say it, you know, from the gamer perspective, especially from the perspective of people who follow my channel, I've noticed um, people don't have a high opinion of ray tracing in general, like truly. And so I wonder if you own a ray tracing graphics card or use it at all, because I mean, if you were to ask me summarize what ray tracing is right now, I would say, well, basically ray tracing is... Uh, it's it's almost a gimmick. It's just barely not a gimmick. It's in a handful of games, and it doesn't run very well, and most people turn it off unless they have a $3,000 PC, but most people don't. Yeah, no. I mean, in terms of the ray tracing capabilities of Turing, they were grossly underwhelming. Um, and you remember before, what was it, a DLSS upgrade that they had, it fell straight on its face every time you would turn it on. Um, <laughs> it was it was, it was, was entirely useless, I would say, when it first came out. Right. The latest Ampere release, though, I think corrects a lot of those, at least from, from what I've heard thus far. And now we're kind of on that direction towards a usable ray tracing capability. And that's something that AMD is still behind in. And I don't quite know how they're going to catch up. You know, a lot of this is software-based, uh, but a lot of it is is hardware-based as well. And I think AMD is behind on both sides. NVIDIA, I think they said they have more software engineers than hardware engineers these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and AMD just doesn't have the scale, particularly on the GPU side, to, to, to keep up. You know... To be honest, I actually have to say that I, I am very underwhelmed by Ampere's ray tracing. It's better, you know, but if you look at Ampere, I think just strictly speaking, Ampere's 40 to 50% better in performance than Turing. You know, it's a bigger increase than Turing was over Pascal, but it's not as big of a gaming, you know, frame rate boost as Pascal was over Maxwell, you know, and so with that in mind, you would hope, I hoped that ray tracing would then, you know, if we say it's, let's just say it's 50% better than Turing, although it's really not even there, um, then I would hope ray tracing performance is over, like, double that, honestly, triple. I would hope for triple the ray tracing performance, but it, it, it isn't, though. It really isn't. And in a lot of games, from what I'm seeing, it's still, <laughs> it's not worthless anymore. 
But you're talking about, you know, 350 watt, 1500 to $2,000 graphics cards that are struggling to run games with ray tracing in 4K. And, and you're spending an entire PC's worth of money. This graphics card uses as much energy as two PCs, <laughs> you know, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't seem to be there, in my opinion. It, it, to be entirely honest, I don't think AMD's solution will be as good as Ampere's. But with how underwhelmed I am by Ampere's ray tracing, I'll admit that I wouldn't be surprised if they almost caught up just like that. I wonder if uh, what you would say to that, if that would surprise you if that happened. No, I mean, I, I love your perspective on this. I, I think it's different. It's differentiated. And I like that. My question to you, which, you know, now that we're talking about hypotheticals, um, what what do you think Ampere would be like if it actually chem seven versus Samsung oh. eight? What what kind of improvement do you think we would have seen? I, I you know, I, I there's I had a lot of Ampere leaks. I think some of the early ones, there is a chance one of those samples was a TSMC sample, although maybe not. It's hard for me to say. Um, so let's just talk, you know, hypothetically, not even talk about leaks or something. When you look at Samsung's 8 nanometer, it's basically taking a 10 nanometer node and whipping it as hard as you can, trying to make it a 7 nanometer node. Its density is actually, you know, its theoretical density isn't you know, how many transistors you can pack in for those listening, isn't as high as what you theoretically could get out of seven. But when I see how many transistors they packed into those die spaces, in practice, it seems to be doing the same density levels you're seeing out of real seven nanometer cards. So they accomplished that. But, you know, the dent, the closer you put transistors together, the more heat is close together. And this node is really a third gen 10 nanometer node. And so it gets crazy hot, crazy hot. So if this was on TSMC's 7 nanometer, like I don't think they would have gotten it on EUV. If they would have got it on this 7 nanometer EUV, it would be radically better, by the way. But if they, let's just say it's on what, if it's on the 7 nanometer, know that the 5700 XT is on. Let's just say that. You know, I mean, I think what you would see is similar density levels. So similar size dies. I don't think you're going to see something bigger but I truly believe you would have seen, instead of these cards running 1,800 to 2 gigahertz, I think you would have seen them running at about 2.2 to 2.4 gigahertz. And I think you would have seen them using 10 to 20% less energy. So I think in the mediums, you know, in the middle of the lineup, not that much would change. But at, at the very, in the laptop chips, I think you'd see cards using... I mean, you could you could do some cherry picking where you could probably find some that would use 30, 40% less energy. And I think at the very top end, you wouldn't have gotten something twice as good, but I truly believe that you would have gotten something 10 to 20% better and it would have actually used less energy than it does right now, which in my book is a pretty big deal, especially in, again, in laptops, which I feel like they're very exposed in now. Uh, yes, exposed, but does, does AMD really have a, a laptop competitive product to max Q? I, I believe they will. I do. Um, because when, and here's why, um, the hot chips presentation for Xbox, <laughs> the joke I made is that Lisa Sue must be standing behind that designer with a gun pointed to his head because there were some questions where he just gave bad answers and basically said, 
Um, innovations, we can't say. You know, basically that Xbox Hot Chips presentation for the Series X was the closest we've gotten to an RDNA 2 presentation. But the nuggets that came out of it were incredible. They said this thing uses around 200 watts, and yet it's performing <clears throat> close to a 2080 Ti, at least between a 2080 Super and a 2080 Ti. And so that's the graphics card. Everything on the motherboard, the storage, the, the eight-core processor, the RAM, all of that is using less energy than an equivalent Turing card. Uh, that's that's really impressive. And when you look at Ampere, it's not more efficient than Turing. So I, I, I really think that there's no way around it. I think I think AMD is going to increase efficiency by 45 to 60%, whereas NVIDIA has effectively not moved the goalpost. So you think AMD is going to have a laptop card announcement when in the next three months or before the end of the year? I mean, they missed... I think, I think, I think desktop comes first. I think they missed the holiday seasons. But, and again, I, I'm just saying I don't have a source telling me this. I'm, this is my opinion. Uh, I believe quarter one, two, they're going to try to pair discrete laptop GPUs with Saison and Lucian APUs that will be Zen 3 gaming. You know, I think that's going to be an incredible gaming laptop uh, package pairing a Zen 3-based 8-core in a laptop that probably uses less energy than the ones they have now, or could if they want it to. And a graphics card that, you know, let's just, you know, I agree, by the way, I think their current graphics cards and laptops, their offerings aren't aren't that impressive. And frankly, not only are they not impressive, they're questionably unimpressive when they're like, it's like, I don't even know what they're doing. Besides, there is actually one laptop uh, graphics card in the MacBooks that I think looks pretty good. Um, But, you know, the only Mac gets it and you have to pay thousands. So I think if you think of like, let's say it's just even a 50% efficiency increase, their top laptop card right now is around a 2060 Super. So I think right there, they're going to have, yeah, I think they're going to have something around, you know, they're, they're going to have something, I think, around 2080 Ti performance in a 100-watt graphics card. And I think NVIDIA is going to struggle to do the same without some pretty serious cherry-picking. I think they're going to... I think in the top end of laptop, for sure, they're going to challenge NVIDIA's top-performing card, if not exceed it. So forget desktop. I think that's for sure going to happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it would be the next logical step for them. I, I'm just unsure as to timing. And to your point, the combo of the CPU and GPU into a single gaming laptop, I think, you know, just can't be, can't be denied. I'm sure the marketing guys over at AMD are, 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 are lipping, licking their chops on this one. And NVIDIA is not happy. I've heard from an AIB that NVIDIA is like threatening, and, and again, like guys, I don't, I'm just saying this is what I've, I've heard, that NVIDIA is threatening some AIBs with uh, supplies if they <laughs> keep pushing these uh, Renoir laptops so hard with, you know, with uh, AMD graphics cards, because they, they're, I think, I think NVIDIA is very scared about this happening. Actually, let, let me get to a reader mail here. We have, haven't had any yet. Um, Melodic Warrior writes and says, Hi, Tom and Chris. I have two questions. First, do you think that AMD is going to grow market share more so in 2021 than 2020? Second, I personally believe that NVIDIA ARM deal is not going well. At least that is what I'm hearing from vendors and partners. 
What do you think that the ongoing situation holds for the semiconductor businesses? Will they push back against NVIDIA's grip or will they take a different route? Love the content and keep it up. So I think the first thing I would ask from his question, though, is let's say this is true. AMD takes because they make the best gaming laptop graphics card you can because it simply fits in a laptop that a, you know, NVIDIA can't make something bigger because it just uses too much energy to fit in it. Like, what do you think there's a lot of room for them to take market share in laptop from NVIDIA if that does happen? Or do you think there's other factors that could prevent that next year? Yeah, for sure. There is. We actually do a lot of work here. I'm trying to look it up as we speak, but we do a lot of share on the discrete side. I can give you some data on that in a second. But in terms of uh, not just discrete, but high end discrete, you know, the Max Q line, for example, it's all NVIDIA right now on the gaming side. So this is only upside for, for AMD. Right. And so, and that's a question I've been asked, how much market share do you think they can take? And I think my answer is simply, so it's, hard, it's always hard to say what the top would be, right? But I think that they can only go up in discrete market share on laptops. When you look at, and, I, and I'm just speaking from my own anecdotal evidence, like I can't get an AMD <laughs> graphics card in a laptop if I try. They all have NVIDIA. Right, exactly. So do you think... And it's interesting because early this year, I think people were talking about how AMD was taking some market share, but it seems near the end of the year, it's, you know, NVIDIA is coming right back. So, I mean, do you think AMD will take more market share than in 2021? On the GPU side, I had them maxing out in 2Q actually at 33.5% in, uh, in, in graphics cards. In 3Q, they waned a little bit to just under 31%. And, you know, in 21, I actually still believe that NVIDIA is going to take some share. Um, And that's because last year was a good year for, for AMD. The Turing products, as we talked about, they had the ray tracing issues. So that wasn't really a compelling feature. And AMD had on their side a more competitive product. Um, and they took some really nice share. As we move into you know, Q1, Q2 of next year, Ampere will continue to, to take some share here. And then, uh, and then maybe as you start moving into 2Q and things become a little bit more available, maybe AMD starts taking a little back or at least stabilizing some of those share losses. But it was a really nice year. 2020 was a really nice year for AMD. So I guess what I would say, now does this come from, you believe it's simply from the virtue that Ampere is better than Turing and that's why you think Ampere will take more market share? Or do you think it's, it has to do with kind of, you know, gamers wanting NVIDIA more so than they did with Turing, if that makes sense. Yeah, a couple of things. I, what I would say is that Turing was a bit disappointing, and mm-hmm. so there was pent up demand for Ampere. And I and I do think that's definitely true. <laughs> and so that's what you're seeing now is you're seeing this this release of pent up demand, and that also played into some of the share shifts with AMD as well. As Turing was underwhelming, AMD started to pick up some share uh, as well, particularly as they were releasing some some mid and higher end offerings too. 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely think all of that's valid and true, but, and, and again, I'm just one guy, you know, so, um, but I, I do have to say this, that I am getting the feeling right now that, in fact, NVIDIA just squandered more goodwill, actually, with Ampere than a lot of people are anticipating. I, I agree there was a ton of pent-up demand, and you can see it. Um, but at the same time, when I... So I just did a live stream, for example. I just did a live stream on Sunday, you know, the 4th, and an open discussion I had in this live Q&A is, I, for, some, for some reason, I'm getting the feeling that people really are thinking of Ampere, at least gamers online, more negatively than they did Turing right now. Now, it could just be the bubble I'm in, right? But when I asked people on the live stream, what do you think? It was 75% said Ampere is a worse launch than Turing. Because although the performance is there, they lied about, and again, you know, as I said in my article, I, I believe they lied about availability. And the fat and and they overpromised its performance. Is it better than Turing? Sure, but it's not what they said it was going to be. And now there's all these hardware problems as well. People can't get their hands on them. I don't. At least right now, this week, I get the feeling that a lot of the high end space, at least, has soured on Nvidia as much so as they did when Turing came out. And I, I've, I've never seen, you know, when Turing came out, all of these, I know who follows my channel are NVIDIA fanboys. Like, I know who's like, well, it's expensive, but they're bringing ray tracing. I'm not seeing that with Ampere. I'm seeing a lot of people go, you know what? I'm actually fed up. I mean, I don't know if you've seen that at all or if you have any thoughts on what I just threw out there, because I'm guessing that's also kind of a contrarian opinion, in your, wouldn't you say? You know... Part of the reason that I talk to you is because you're often on the leading edge of some of these ideas. Um, no, and the, thank and you. The, <laughs> and the and the financial community sometimes is, is behind. And I will tell you that we're not having the same debate over here as as far as the financial community is mm-hmm. concerned. You know, we were thinking it was a successful launch. Uh, yes, we know that NVIDIA plays games with shortages on new releases. Uh, they they kind of always have. But the shortages here are maybe a little bit more than than other launches that we've seen. Oh, it's not even close, though. It's not even close, the, the shortages. It's they effectively, and I, and I know from, you know, talking to people who work at Micro Center and Best Buy, it's, it's universal. This is not comparable to even like Radeon 7 or like those niche product launches. This is a, this, like I've had some people just say these cards were effectively unavailable at launch. And now we're seeing them producing thousands a day exactly like I thought they would in October. So I think what you're, I, I, and again, you know, I, I think NVIDIA rushed out a launch and then tried to make the best of it by high, like having the scarcity move up prices and then stuff the channels in October. Is where I'm sitting, that it looks like that's definitely happening as expected, you know, and, and I think a lot of gamers have seen through it. Could be. Um, Wall Street generally fallen for it. Which is important for you to say, right? People listening to this. You know, that, and that's something I'm always interested in too, is, well, what are they saying on Wall Street? And you're saying that they just think it's, pen, it's, it's demand that's making this unavailable. I would say both. We're not clueless as to the fact that 
these shortages happen every time on release. And we do believe in some ways they're manufactured. And this is no exception. But we are mm. also thinking that the, the demand was generally there. But, you know, we really always seek out differentiated opinions because it is those surprises uh, on Wall Street that move stocks. And so if indeed this is falling flat, then that's a really, really important data point. So I guess uh, I, what I'll ask then, what was that? By the way, we never uh, discussed ARM, but... Yeah, I was about to ask. That's what I was going to ask. What do you think about the NVIDIA ARM deal? You know, from the financial side of things, this might be a, a differentiated opinion, but, you know, Jensen's seen his stock lose, call it, you know, 70 plus percent of its value several times during his career. and. You know, this is one that they've had an incredible surge. Uh, if you look at valuations, you know, we're still a buy on mm-hmm. stock. We upgraded them to a buy at 180 something. But if you do look at valuations, they are pricey. And I think what he did, if you look at the mix between cash and stock, he gave away from some of his stock for the arm business, basically. And so it was a way of kind of low-key cashing out (laughs) some of his stock for an asset that I used to cover arm and arm, you know, was sold for roughly 30 billion to SoftBank and now it's 40 billion many years later. And so that has kind of grown into its multiple. And so it's not quite cash. It's not trading out NVIDIA stock for cash, but it's trading out NVIDIA stock for an asset that had a valuation significantly less than where NVIDIA is trading at right now. So that was the, that's the first thing that I would say about it. And secondly, it's ARM's just in an odd place right now. They really haven't been able to push the server side of things at the high end. And then at the low end, you have RISC-V coming, and they may even be under pressure at the low end on that side. So I, I'm not quite sure what Jensen wants to do about this from from a strategy perspective. I'm kind of viewing this as the mm-hmm. number one reason that this happened was financial, and it wasn't actually strategic. Yeah, um, that's yeah because I think when people ask me what I think about it, I'm just like it's a logical conclusion that you want to be able to have your own CPU wing when Intel's adding a GPU wing and AMD's has both, and now AMD's. Seemingly firing on all cylinders with both, or at least close to with the GPU side, that to not be able to make your own CPUs is a major weakness. That's how I see it. But I think what you're saying is it's just a logical buy for those reasons, maybe, but also just it's also just a good time to do this now, right? You know, NVIDIA had a ARM-based server product. They killed it. So if they wanted to, I mean, anyone can take out a license. They have a license uh, Mm -hmm. to build those products, a V8 license, and they stopped development of that. And so it's not super clear why they would just take that up again out of the blue. But today, they actually had an announcement earlier this morning. And and one interesting takeaway from that was uh, they bought Mellanox. And within Mellanox, uh, there's a product, which is an ARM-based smart NIC um, and it is uh, basically, think about it as a CPU. Uh, it does 
appear as though on that roadmap, they are now going to put some NVIDIA AI cores into mm. that smart NIC as well. So maybe we're starting to see some strategic rationale here as to the mixing and matching of uh, of these products, but mm. it doesn't jump off the uh, it doesn't jump off the page to me. The strategic fit. And I guess the last part of our <laughs> person's que- melodic warriors question that we've been all over on uh, for the past ten minutes is like, what about CPU market share? Do you think AMD can take more CPU market share next year than this year? Yeah, so I will tell you what the market believes and okay. what I believe embedded in AMD's price right now. They have expectations for desktop share to probably reach, this is over the next few years, mm-hmm. You know, 35% plus, maybe even 40%, and on laptop side of things, 25%. Uh, and then the big one for us is server. Server right now, despite what AMD says, if you're looking at a true market share, it's about 5 6% somewhere in that area. And the market is embedding 10 to 50% uh, over the next few years. The real inflection that I think the market is looking for over the next few is going to be for Milan and for mm-hmm. this, this next spin on server. Is this where the rubber meets the road? And Intel really has to start worrying if AMD is able to get their server share up to, let's say, 15%. They have a real problem because for both companies, that's where the profits, not the revenue, yeah. but the profits are coming from. Stephen Hart writes in and says, with Intel supposedly sitting on this mountain of cash, can they actually spend it? to buy their way out of this predicament. I work for Harvard, and even though their endowment is billions of dollars, most of it can't be touched without the allocation it was designated for. Is Intel stockpile similar? Can they do what Global Foundries did to license processes from Samsung? Or I doubt TSMC would want to do that soon. Well, they are going to do it with TMC, uh, Stefan Hart. Um, uh, Can they pull... Yeah. So, I mean, so what would you say to that? Like Intel's mountain of cash? Because that's an argument I hear all the time. Yeah, I... I had one investor put it interestingly. He's convinced that aliens came down to Earth and gave Intel CPU technology. And outside of that, Intel has ruined every (laughs) single other thing they've touched. (laughs) Intel absolutely will continue to do acquisitions and they will absolutely destroy those companies. They probably overpaid for Havana. They're probably going to kill that. Movidius, they're probably going to kill that. Was it Nirvana? They're probably going to kill that. I've heard they are looking at Nuvia, although they haven't done it yet. They're, I'm sure they're going to beef up. You know, they bought Barefoot Networks. They're, that's probably going to fall apart, just like Fulcrum, the networking company they bought before that. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And um, it's, it's a real shame. I don't know what the heck is going on with the, the corporate dev strategy over there. You know, if they can't grow these companies, if they drive them into the ground, just give cash back to shareholders instead. Because ultimately, their core business is under attack. They're not even winning that game. Um, and the cash cow that it is today, uh, you know, they're taking that milk and, and they're basically pouring it down the gutter. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't expect anything to change. 
You know, and and what I've heard is that a lot of the foundry problems with 10 nanometer was partially solved by getting more funding in the past few years that once they took, they were saying, we need way more people working on this problem. We need way more, you know, money poured into testing. And they ignored him because they thought AMD would never catch up, but then they did. And now 10 nanometer works. I'm not sure how many solutions are that simple though for Intel. Like I think people see money as power and I think money is potential power, but you've got to actually be able to spend it on something you can do something with. And when you see them, you know, again, the example I give over and over is buying McAfee for $7 billion instead of pouring $7 billion into making their fabs release products on time. I mean, I, I don't, I guess, and again, you know, I'm not some expert, but from where I sit, I think money is an asset, but I, it's not a silver bullet is how I would put it. And that, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if you would add on to that at all. It sounds like you kind of said a similar thing. Yeah. It's just a travel to see this great American company and them not get out of their own way. It's, it's sad. Nils writes in and he says, are there any other industries that you think we can draw parallels to when it comes to the situation of many individual foundries slowly becoming dominated by one or two on more advanced nodes? And if so, is there still a path to competition? How much investment that is required to create a new node or to produce anything on Silicon? I can't really see startups popping up and unsettling the big competitors in the foundry space. I'm just hoping there's an answer to the question of what future foundry businesses look like that isn't TSMC owns the entire market while Samsung and Global Foundry uh, scramble on old nodes. Yeah, I mean, this is just one of those industries where scale matters. I guess not in the case of Intel, because Intel had the scale at one point, but... It matters. It's not everything. It matters. It's not everything. But when you look at TSM, they have the scale. They have all the scale they need and more. And they have the execution. Uh, It's a Mm. phenomenal, phenomenal company. Um, It's a phenomenal country, Taiwan. It is amazing what they've been able to do in microelectronics across all facets, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's substrates or, you know, just the smallest microelectronic components you didn't even know could exist. Um, They've almost cornered the market on uh, for, for a lot of these, but uh, yeah, back to the the foundry issue. Um, You know, I think, I think your your caller or, or writer or listener has not the right answer, um, but but he may have answered his own question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I really can't. I I don't see Intel catching up to TSM. I see Intel actually, and we've written about this, mm-hmm. uh, moving closer and closer and closer. We've even explored. Intel potentially selling their fabs to TSM. We know TSM has ambitions uh, to have a fab in the United States, at least to to satisfy the United States government, uh, at least. And that would help. Uh, It would also help Intel solve their massive depreciation problem they have coming down the pike. They still have to pay pay for, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. the uh, all the equipment that they've bought. Um, uh, and they still have to use. Uh, that hasn't actually flown through the financial statements. It's odd how this works from that perspective. But they have this huge burden of having 
these fads and having mm-hmm. to use them. So we think it makes sense for them to actually buddy buddy with TSM who can use their equipment to fix their process, at least for, you know, call it five nanometer and forward for Intel. It sounds like you think if they don't figure out some way of half selling their fabs or doing some partnership that they may be in serious long-term trouble. Yeah. So switching gears to maybe a couple of final questions, I do have a couple people asking type 2501 and CATS 342. I'm going to try to compress it a little bit. I mean, what do you think about risk five and, you know, its current place in the market? And where do you think risk five could go and how it will affect the semiconductor market? I, it's a giant question mark, um, is the way that I see it. But it is a risk, particularly to ARM on the low power side, the mobile side, the ubiquity side. And we'll have to see uh, where that goes, whether it, it actually gains traction or not. It's too early for me to tell. But it's a non-zero risk as, as I look at guys like ARM. Yeah, when I look at part of Kant's question, he says, how do investors feel about its recent growth? And and how it affects other companies. It sounds like you see it as predominantly a risk to ARM more so than others right now. Yeah, ARM and NVIDIA. There are some other architectures too on the microcontroller side. That's probably a little more out of this conversation. But yeah, ARM and NVIDIA. If if NVIDIA can get ARM through the regulatory gauntlet, that's the, the, the primary risk. All right. Tommy Spratt writes in and he says, is Tesla's market value justified? Does their market value correctly indicate they have an insurmountable lead? Because when I look at it, here's the comparisons. Tesla, 386 billion. Toyota, 184. Volkswagen, 84. Daimler, 58. General Motors, 43. Ford, 26. (laughs) So uh, I I probably need to be a little bit careful here, but also I can't resist. So um, (laughs) we don't cover them. And I have been a long time Tesla shareholder and bull. I've examined them from the semiconductor side, and I can tell you some pretty fascinating things on that side too. But you know, the way that I would think about Tesla, the way that I think about it is a collection of businesses. Mm. So the collection of businesses are things like, for example, And I have a Model 3, for example. You know, they charge me $10 a month for connectivity. That's going to be across their entire installed base. So like OnStar or Mm. um, one of these companies, all of a sudden Tesla has that across their entire base. They're going to do their own batteries. So they have margin stacking on the battery side. They're going to have autonomous driving. I bought the full self-driving package. I got it. A discount on it for $3,000, but they want to charge $8,000 for that. And you should think about that as a software company. Um, mm-hmm. So they should get software margins and software valuations for that. Also, a lot of automotive companies, all they're doing is taking other people's parts and assembling them versus Tesla, which is done for So making their own batteries, making their own semiconductors, so they make their own full self-driving chips. They also make their own... Thank you, Jim Keller. Thank you, Jim <laughs> Keller. They also make their own battery management chips, which are incredibly complex. And I, I think they're going to continue to do more and more of those. They also make a lot of their own other parts as well. And then, of course, you have the energy business, which I think mm. will take off at some point when they do have an adequate battery supply. And then you have to 
continue to look to the future and believe that Tesla is going to get into more and more businesses. So the two closest parallels in terms of stocks and companies that mm-hmm. I compare Tesla to today are Apple and Amazon. Uh, Apple, in terms of the product, Tesla is very, very similar. It's software-based, over-the-air updates, fully integrated, both software and hardware together. And then Amazon, in terms of, number one, not looking for a near-term profit and reinvesting all those profits into new businesses that they're going to enter. Because as you know, Amazon obviously in '98 or whatever was just mm. a bookstore. It was just a bookstore. <laughs> Amazon is a good comparison, yeah. And so Tesla is going to have more and more and more of these businesses. And so it's really hard because people are looking at this company today and they're comparing them to traditional automakers. First of all, because of their vertical integration and because mm-hmm. of all of these businesses that we're talking about, they're something totally different. But then also, you have to give Elon credit for some number of businesses that he's going to create in the future. And so that's why I think the valuation is what it is. And I won't say whether it's overvalued or undervalued. I don't cover it officially, um, so I don't have a rating. Mm. I'll just tell you that I'm still bullish on it. Yeah, I mean, and from where I, I don't own any Tesla, well, any Tesla anything, um, but I did work for General Motors and I own a Ford Mustang. So I'm coming from the perspective of a, you know, America, you know, classic old big three American kind of family mentality. And, you know, when I worked at General Motors, though, there was a real respect for what Tesla was trying to do amongst the engineers there, like, you know, a new automotive manufacturer. And so what I would say is, look, uh, overvalued is it's just, they did it. Everyone said they couldn't do it. Everyone said you couldn't make a new automotive manufacturer and they have, and it is working. Yes, there's (laughs) some problems sometimes. We all acknowledge that, but I mean, uh, the way I look at it is just in terms of an energy company, actually. You know, they have solar, they're working on other uh, things as well. And forget solar. In fact, the biggest hindrance to green energy is batteries. Batteries. At least, I believe it is at least half of energy made from like windmills and so on and so forth is wasted because it cannot be properly transported and stored somewhere. And who's making the most advanced batteries? Tesla. What uses batteries? Everything. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you put it really well. Uh, there's a, a giant battery pack in Hornsdale, Australia, uh, doing exactly what you're talking about, storing wind and solar. And it's been a huge success. But, but also having an energy system, in which people might have a small, even a small battery pack uh, in their house in order to mm-hmm. level, in order to level load the grid and to stop firing up these peaker plants, which are incredibly wasteful, is potentially a game changer. But that you know, that's an area of the market that is almost nothing for for Tesla today. But uh, Elon has come out and said that he thought the energy business could be as large as the auto business someday. And so you got to put that into the, the, the valuation as well. Well, yeah. And you know, before we started recording, I'm actually recording this 
with a power outage. <laughs> I haven't actually checked the breaker. I could, pro I think power's probably back on by now. If I had to guess looking at outside my windows. But I mean, you know, before we started recording, I have this big backup battery. I plugged my laptop in and used a hotspot to make this happen. But, you know, it's not just a car company though. And I'm today as of this recording, I can see a use for whatever. This isn't intended to be some giant Tesla advertisement at the end, but I get, but I guess what we're saying is, you know, are there downsides? Could they screw up? Sure. And if they do, they're absurdly overvalued, but at the same time, you know, they're not a car company. They're a car energy, AI battery, uh, <laughs> you know, company that just just yeah. to speculate on on one other thing, there's some belief that they're going to have a VTOL. Trend. Really? Yeah, uh, and that that they may have kind of short hub, you know, one to four person VTOL um, vertical takeoff and landing, basically drone people carrying drones. So if I wanted to go from Morristown, New Jersey, to uh, Weston, Massachusetts, I could do that in in one of these. You know, this is a, maybe a little bit pie in the sky, but these yeah. are the kind of ideas and businesses that, that they're uh, trying that may eventually come and work into that valuation. Well, I can see your son was just walking up behind you and waving to me and trying to uh, get your attention. You said you'd go for an hour and we went longer than an hour. So I think we got through most of what we needed to. I, at the end of the day, I'm pretty sure we could talk forever. So at a certain point, you just got to cut it off. Um, yeah, I think this was really valuable for people to hear kind of the perspectives of the people actually making investments in this space. So yeah, Chris, thanks for coming on. I mean, uh, I'll reach out to you with any other you know links or things you might want to put in the bottom below. But uh, yeah, I think I'll just let you go now. You seem pretty busy. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tom. Really appreciate it. Great chatting with you. And uh, thank you for, for advising us uh, yeah. on, on all this. Which, yes, full disclosure, I, I you know do come into some of your calls at times as well. <laughs> You're awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. The following podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website, Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law's Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, Moore's Law's Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and select technical editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at www.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois, 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are solely responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast, Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, the Moore's Law is Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. At higher tiers, you get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover States podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Law's Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit.
and give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Matthew McMullen, Tello, Steen, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Rupp, I Love You, Lennon, Jim Bollock, Shasha Albin, Muhammad Al-Kawari, Frederick Lau, James Crassett, Justin Baird, Zachary Martin, Terrence Herod, Brad Medlin, Phil S., Courtney Elliott, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, TSPCFS, Chrysantine, Night Rogue 77, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo King Kilo, Fatboy Diesel, Daniel Hyde, D. Kanki, Christoph Novak, Jack O'Neill, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Sexy, VI Pass, Sadler Sadler, Isaiah Gosner, Lethros, Telos, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchuk, Jacob Barber, Exoti, Extra Santana, Matthew Lang, Joe McMorrow, Jan Rauner, Rubber Ducks, Drita Full, Allie Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Job, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, George Danforth, Sam McArthur, Total Silo, Sol Connor, Michael Costa, Andrew S., Blake, Aaron Keith, Kerry Baldino, Endless Loggins, Tom Sanfilippo, Justice Brennan, Ivan K., Trevor Powers, Sayonara, Alenia, Joshua Stavnis, Daniel Nishval, Franco Frederick, Hardware Numbers, Alex Carastillo, Dark Rain 2049, Leighton Perry, Mac, Carlos Valdez, Carnivore Bear, Mac 226, Zebra Zebra, Zlicky, Matt M. Porsegi, David Cowden, Ricky Tam, Garanadin, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Quinoas Jr., Christopher Foster, Kiwi Phil, Joaquin Hagan, Hair Light, Anthony Gareffa, Matthew Griffin, Alex Joseph Loria, Calm Marco, Deke, Cheesy Ramen, Raul Abeneni, Master Andy Wan, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Maxim Brutukin, Ryan Deniskew, Dave McCoy, Falco Malev, Masseurs, Paul Bogdan, Morton Spedson, Andrew, Thomas Summers, Maurice Courtois, Matthew J. Link, Mose from Oz, My Sharona, Derek File, Roman, Jacob Stankiewicz, Jack Pym, Austin Tannis, JBG, Stephen Hart, Daniel T. Holtzclaw, Charles Antoine Foteau, Peter Moore, Chris Licata, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, James Kitchens, and of course, thank you to Zahara for the music. 